Aloha, everyone. Welcome to the New Hope Oahu podcast. This week, we are continuing the Issachar Anointing series with Pastor John Burgess, Sand Island Campus Pastor. So Pastor John Burgess is going to challenge us to move from complacency to active participation, from bystanders to disciples in this great message entitled, What Time Is It? One more thing before we listen to the sermon. If you would like to give to New Hope Oahu to support the podcast or our church, you can by going to enewhope.org slash give. So let's jump right in. my favorite person too and you're my favorite church i'm so glad you guys are here this morning and welcome to those joining us online from all over the place as we continue our issachar anointing series now if you're not familiar with what that is issachar was a tribe of israel and they had anointing a power a discernment to be able to discern the times and the seasons that they were in and to be able to know how to lead their people in the ways of the lord and it's our goal and desire that through this study you and i would be able to do the same thing in our topsy-turvy world in 2020 that you and i would be able to discern the times and the seasons and know how to lead our families and our friends and our workplaces and in our church and community and one of the best ways is to start out by looking at how we're using our time. So that's why today's message is called, What Time Is It? And instantly I think of that old bird song. To everything turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. Don't worry, I'm stopping there. Don't, I'm, I'm not going to keep going. But, but you may not realize that they totally ripped that song off from the wisest man to ever live. It was King Solomon that actually wrote the words that they use in that song. And you can actually see some of them at the top of your notes in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 3. Don't worry, you don't got to sing it with me. But I would love it if you would read this with me. You can read it on your notes or up here on the screen or on your app. Ready? Go. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to uproot, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to tear down, and a time to build. And as you keep reading through that passage, he continues to use those contrasts, positive and negative contrasts, that you, everyone that lives on this planet, experiences in the cycle of life, the highs and the lows, the good and the bad, the happy and the sad. We all experience them. When I was young, I would read this passage and I would think those times are all separate, right? You have some, sometimes they're happy times and then this completely different season is sad. But the older that I get, the more of life I experience, the more I realize, you guys probably see this too, those times happen at the same time. 
You guys ever had this happen where you uh, rejoice with a family member because they just had a brand new baby born or you just get back from going to a wedding where two people that you really love uh, join hands in marriage and then right on the heels of this joyous experience, you get the tragic news that someone you love and care about has just died in a car accident. I mean, I wish that was rare, but I, I find it more common than not that our good and our bad is at the same time time and our emotions are are in upheaval and we don't even know what to do or how to discern how to respond and and it's it's kind of like in a weather front what happens when you get a hot front and a cold front that come together at the same time what do you get yeah you get a storm you get lightning you get thunder and sometimes it's in the middle of the storm that we lose our discernment we lose our wisdom we lose our Way And if you're there right now, God wants to speak to you, give you wisdom on how to use the time that you've been given, even if it's in the middle of a storm. And I was reminded of this, it was um, towards the end of December, when I had a conversation with my brother, Phil Quadra, and... Um, and he, when I were talking right outside the ministry center, it was like a Thursday, and uh, and he just, I walked up to him, and I'm like, how's it going over at Pac Rim? He goes to our Pacific Rim University, and he uh, loves being a student there, and he was just learning so much. He was really relieved his finals were done, and he felt like he had done pretty good in them. Uh, he was talking to me about his new job over at the Blessed Life at uh, Pearl Ridge Mall, and uh, he was talking about how much he was looking forward to Christmas. He, like me, really enjoyed Christmas and was looking forward to celebrating with his family. And we, it was just one of those like uplifting conversations. And it wasn't like two days later when I found out that he had gone to the hospital, he wasn't feeling so good, and he had passed away overnight. And immediately my heart went from high to low in 3.5 seconds. And I, I, I even had that, that initial like denial, like, no, that's no. That cannot be. I literally just talked to him and he looked great. There's, there was nothing wrong with him. There's some kind of mistake. And I, I confirmed it with his family that he had indeed gone home to be with Jesus. And immediately it just had me asking the question that we're asking this morning. How much time do we really have, right? I was glad that my last interaction with Phil was positive, but I, I began to think about all my other interactions, and I wish I could say all of my interactions with people are positive, but that would be dishonest. And sometimes when we have uh, relationships that are falling apart or on ro are kind of rocky, we think, I'll, I'll fix that later, I'll apologize later, I'll call them later, we'll deal with that later, because we always think we have more time. And with Phil's sudden homecoming, it caused me to realize, how am I using the time that I've been given? It's not a morbid living. It's actually responsible living to use well the time that we have been given. When we have that collision of happy and sad, I actually think it brings clarity to us. And I'm praying that our study today in the, in the life of Abraham will bring that clarity, whether things are going well for you or not, or you're some in, in the kind of that storm of a collision of good and bad. I'm praying that the choices that we make today will help us through because his, his family described as he's passed, he passed away in his sleep, he had a big old smile on his face. It was the smile of someone who was looking face to face at his Savior. And by the way, if you don't know Jesus that way, as your Lord and Savior, before communion at the end of the service today, I'm going to provide an opportunity for you to meet Jesus as well. That you can know Him as your Lord and Savior. That you can know 
that when our time here on earth is done, our time in heaven has just begun. And in order to make sure we are using our time well, we're going to have to make three choices today. And the first is this, is that you and I would choose to move from settlers to sojourners. You can fill that in in your first blank, that we would move from settlers to sojourners, that we have this choice every single day of our lives, whether we are going to settle for less or whether we're going to continue to journey into God's best every day. We have that choice. Kind of indicated by this comfortable, well-worn chair passed down from father to son. It's been well used. This is our settler's chair. It's always there for us. It calls our name. And yet God is calling our name as well. And he's saying, I want you to get going. I want you to get off your butt. And I want you to follow me. Which means you and I have to choose between that And this, camping, life in a tent. Now, my wife, she was just up here. She's amazing. She has willingly followed with me everywhere that God has called us to go, even when it meant leaving behind family and friends. She has always faithfully gone with me. But one place that she does not like to go with me involves camping. You see... um, She kind of says it to me this way. She says, John, do you ever hear the phrase, well, aren't they a happy camper in a positive light? And I go, well, uh, now that you mention it, normally it means that uh, they're grumpy. And she's like, exactly. Do you want a grumpy wife? I don't think so. And she's like, it doesn't make any sense, right? Why would you leave the comfort of your bed and go to sleep with critters and centipedes? Why, Why is that fun to you? She's like, we pay rent so that we can live in a nice house with a roof over our head, and you want to go sleep under some canvas? I don't understand. And, of course, I, I get her point. And, but, you know, in my head, I'm like, hey, the boys want to go, you know, camping. It's a good kind of family bonding experience. But inevitably, you pour the tent out, and you're like, wait a minute, where's the instructions? Hey, boys, where's the instructions? And they're like, I don't know. I thought you had them. You know, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. And then and then what was supposed to be like a really fun family experience becomes really high-pressured, you know, all of a sudden. And everybody's like looking like the sun is going down. And you're like, how do you do this? How did you make this work? How does it all fit? And, and you know that you're under the pressure, right? You're under the gun. If you don't get this tent up before the sun goes down, and then you got to get the fire it's got to stay in the thing and if you if you don't get it going then the, the pressure and then you don't have the food and then you're in deep kimchi because everyone's cold and everyone's grumpy where is that pen that sky where is it somewhere around here and everyone's like standing at you you know staring at you and i'm like i'm the man this is the man's job i, I gotta turn in my man's card if i can't figure out how to set up this tent so there you go boys And instantly, my wife's words starting to sound a lot more logical. The call, the comfort, it's not called an easy chair for nothing, because it's easy. I don't have to do any setup. I don't have to follow any instructions. It's nice and cushy, right? And this is why we settle. It's always easier to settle. It's always easier to stay in what we know than to follow God into the unknown. 
In fact, you actually see that here. I, I have read this passage so many times and God showed me something new. You've probably already seen this, but the contrast between Abraham and his dad. Now, Abraham gets all the play, but his dad actually had a choice before him. His dad was Terah, and you'll see here in Genesis 11, 31 through 32, Terah makes a choice that affects the rest of his family. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they what? So they were headed to Canaan, but they settled in Haran, and Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. And I want to propose to you that he wasn't supposed to die there. That's not where he was supposed to settle. If Canaan is kind of triggering something in your brain like Canaan, Canaan, I've heard of that before, you're absolutely right. Because when God led his people out of Egypt, he led them to the promised land. And guess what the promised land was? Canaan. The land flowing with milk and honey. And all these years before that, God was calling Abraham to be the first of that journey towards the promised land. And yet his dad stopped short. His dad settled. We don't know why. Scripture doesn't tell us why. There's any number of reasons why he would have stopped short of Canaan. He was tired. His camels were thirsty. Maybe he found a nice spot under the palm trees. None of us know. But here's why I propose to you that this is not where he was supposed to stop. Because in the very next chapter, in the very next verse, look what God says to Terah's son, Abram. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Interesting. God was saying, I need you to complete what your dad never did. I need you to walk farther than your dad ever did. I need you to step out of what you know into the unknown. And every one of us actually has the same choice. Will we settle for what came before? Or will we step into the new that God has for you and I? Hebrews digs even deeper into applying it into our lives in the New Testament. And Hebrews 11, 8-10 says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed to go out unto a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing whither he went. Now, how many of us ever get in the car and just go, uh, not knowing where we're going? Who has time to do that? Right? And if I'm going to a destination that I, I've never been to before, guess what I do? I type in the destination into my phone, and Siri gently and kindly guides me along the way. Please turn left at the next light. Look both ways before crossing. Notice the stop sign. You're going too fast. You know, it's just she, she guides me all the way there. And yet, unlike Siri's voice, God's voice is telling Abraham, I want you to go, but I'm not telling you where you're going. I will show you as you go. What? Now that's the life of faith. And Hebrews points out that's actually how you and I are called to live as well. Verse 9 says, by Faith, he became a what? A sojourner. In the land of promise, as in a land not his own, dwelling in tents. With Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. 
For he looked for the city which hath the foundation, whose builder and maker is God. This is not our home. We are, all of us who follow Jesus, sojourners. The life of faith that Abraham was called to is the life of faith the sons and daughters of Abraham have been called to. You and I, we are made for a heavenly city. We are citizens of heaven. We aren't meant to settle here. This is not where we stay. And unless we get that through in our heads, you and I will miss out on everything that God has for us. But there's something alluring about settling. In a world of change, it calls our name and promises ease and comfort for our soul. I mean, you guys don't mind if I just take a little seat here, right? It's kind of tiring standing in front of everybody just the whole time. I mean, I'm just going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to, I'll just, I'll be fine. Don't worry about it. This is why we stay. This is why we settle because it's so nice. It's so comfortable. It's soft and plushy and it's well worn by our ancestors before us. Our parents and our grandparents have all told us it's okay to settle. Uh, They hand down uh, traditions they hand down attitudes from, from father to son. Sometimes they even hand down addictions. And, and well, because we've been doing it for so long, there's nothing wrong with this, right? Unless it's keeping us from what it is that God has for us. Then there is definitely something wrong with staying in the chair. I want us to look at the three C's of settling. And you might be able to relate with some of these or all of these. And it's very simple and it's comfort. It's comparison, and it's crisis. These are the three things that keep us in our chair and from moving on. And the first one is very insidious because we don't see it as an enemy. We see it as a friend. The remote has been passed down. We come home at the end of a long day of work. We shut ourselves off from our family, and we're like, I'm just going to watch one episode of that new show on Netflix, just one. Wait a minute. What happens next? Just another one. What? No way. Okay, just another one. And before we know it, we've binged an entire season. And our family and our friends and our kids are all like, Hello? Hello? But comfort lures us into this place. We feel justified in staying here because, my goodness, I've worked so hard. I mean, this is the year, right, that we were going to do 30 crunches every morning when we got out of bed. And, well, maybe maybe 20 crunches. Well, maybe 10 and... And by this time of the year, we're, the only thing that's crunching is our potato chips that we're eating constantly, right? And it's just, it's insidious because it's a slow kind of drift back into, oh, the comfort and the ease of just doing the same thing that we did last year and the year before, and my parents did it, so it must be fine for me, unless God is calling us out like Abraham. And what about Comparison. We all do it. Compare our our marriage with someone else's. Compare our dating relationship with someone else's. Our house with someone else's. Our car with someone else's. Our career with someone else's. And just when we feel like we're ready to start something new, God, I'm going to start something new for you. I'm going to spend time with you in the morning journaling. I'm going to step out into ministry at church. I'm going to apply for a brand new job. We start comparing and then we 
Well, we always get disappointed because our stuff is never as good as someone else's, and so we just settle. We're not settling back because we're enjoying what God has given us. We're settling back because we think, I'll never have any better than this. And comparison sucks the air out of hope. And when you have no hope, you don't change. What about crisis? Maybe some of us were like, 2020 is going to be the year. This is the year of things changing. I'm going to make this so much better. And you started in and you had good habits, spiritual habits, physical habits. You got your 5% priorities in place and you're ready to run with the Lord. And then a crisis hits one after another is usually how it happens in my life. And, and very often in, in others where it's not just one thing, it's multiple things. The car breaks down, the washing machine breaks down. My, my kid gets in trouble at school and, and someone that I really love passed away suddenly. And all of a sudden, all these crises make me go, ah, I'm just going to stay with, with what I know. I'm just going to do what I did last year because it feels safe here. And at least here, I, I'm, I'm, it's familiar and I, I know what to expect. And meanwhile, the Lord is saying, just like he did to Abraham, do we take my hand? Will you leave Haran? Will you follow my plan into what it is that I have for you? I'll show you as you go, the operative word being go. Get off your kole. Leave behind the comfort, the comparison, and the crises. And step into what it is that God has for you. And I know what it feels like to come back here because, again, this was a frustrating experience last time. And God's saying, I know, but this time you're going to do it with me. I'm going to be your instructions. And I'm going to give you something to hold on to, something to clasp your faith onto as we take this journey together. And so the Lord begins to replace that comfort of settling with the courage to try something new. He begins to take that place where you and I are constantly comparing our middle with someone else's end, and he, he gives us uh, contentment instead. He said, I want you to be content with me. In the place of our crisis and our pain, he said, I'm going to give you clarity so that you can understand that when I am with you, what you could not do on your own, you can do with me. And then, then for a moment we step back and we're like, God, this is amazing. What, what am I missing here? What am I missing? And the Lord reminds me, oh, that's right. I'm supposed to lean on him. Get something solid behind everything that he's calling me to do. And then there's no moving me. I'm here. With him. And he opens the door and he says, Hey, come on in. Now, this is, are you sure, God? Yeah, I want you to come in. And I want you to find your covering in me. Yay! I made it! Woo! Now, they said this is a one man tent, but, um, I'm not sure what size that man was, but I'm pretty sure he wasn't 6'2". But the, the visual, you're getting it, right? That God has called us to come under His covering. Is it ever going to be as comfortable as settling? No. Is it ever going to be as easy? Nope. Is it ever going to be as instantaneous? No, but it's always going to be better. Because coming under His covering allows us to face down the crisis, the comparison, 
and the false comfort that this world offers us and allows us to see what we did not see before. What time is it? It's time to move from settling to sojourning. It's time to set up our tent, pack our bags, and remember, this isn't our home. I want to share with you one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis that really gets at the heart of what it is that we're talking about. He said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because it cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Far too easily pleased. God has so much more for you than what settling will ever provide. The call to Abraham, who was willing to leave everything that he knew, get out of the chair, leave behind the remote, and, and take up the journey of faith. He said, Abraham, I want you to look up at the stars. Start counting them. Oh, well, you felt like you've counted enough. You haven't even gotten started. Because you're going to be the father of nations. Abraham, I want you to take that sand and let it run through your fingers and be, go ahead and begin to count the grains of sand because when you think you've counted enough, you haven't even come close to getting a picture of what it is that I'm going to do through you because you are willing to refuse to settle and to instead be a sojourner of faith. What would Abraham have missed out on if he had stayed where his dad stayed? If he'd only gone as far as his dad had gone, he would have missed out on being the father of nations, the father of our faith. What are we missing out on? God is saying, I have so much more for you. It's time. Time to get up. It's time to go. It's time to stop being so cynical and step into his joy. In fact, that's your second point there. Our second choice is that you and I would move from being cynical to joyful. And we live in a cynical culture and time right now. Entire shows are made out from cynics looking at what other people are doing and making fun of it. And if we're not careful, our heart starts to go along with the cynicism and the sarcasm of our culture around us. It kind of reminds me of the, you guys, you guys ever watched the Muppet show? Yeah, I grew up watching the Muppet show and, and I, I just loved, you know, Kermit. You know, hi-ho, Kermit the Frog here. Uh, welcome to the Muppet Show, right? And this little, you know, this poor little guy, he's just coming out there. He's trying to get all the crazy Muppets to do the show, right? And come on. And then you have Waldorf and Statler sitting up there in the mezzanine, always making fun of poor Kermit, right? And, and he, and, you know, Waldorf is like, hey, they aren't half bad. And Statler says, no, they're all bad. <laughs> right? And they just, they laugh at him. And you understand why Kermit sings, it's not easy being green, right? And you understand this poor guy, and it's not easy trying something new when everybody is a Statler and a Waldorf. Everybody is becoming like an armchair critic, criticizing whenever you and I are trying to step out and do something new. And if we're not careful, our hearts begin to be hardened right along with the rest of them, and we become an armchair critic too. Somewhere along the way, that happened to Sarah, Abraham's wife. Maybe this could be called the fourth sea of settling. 
because she had become cynical. Now you and I have been reading through Genesis, and, and you can read the story of Abraham and Sarah over the course of nine chapters. If you're a fast reader, you can probably read it in a half an hour, a bit of a slower reader, maybe an hour. But how quickly we can read through their life kind of causes us to forget how much life is lived in those nine chapters and how much time passes between the promise and the provision. And they waited 25 years. Nothing steals my joy quicker than waiting. Can I get an amen? Right? How many of us like that little beach ball of death that, that spins on your computer when you have to wait because it's too overloaded, right? How many of us get frustrated when we're trying to watch something on YouTube and it makes us watch some dumb advertisement, right? And we can't click past it. And there's no way I'm going to subscribe to YouTube because I want my YouTube free because I'm cheap. But I still don't like to wait for this thing to get done because I should have it instantaneously in our instant gratification culture. We want it here. We want it now. Or I'm out. We begin to apply that to our relationship with God and we're mad at him if he doesn't give what he promised right away. And yet the entirety of the faith journey always involves waiting. I don't know when it happened for Sarah. Was it year 11? Was it year 17? But definitely by year 24, she was firmly seated in cynicism. We get this little glimpse into where her heart was at in Genesis 18. She was technically sitting in her tent, but really she was sitting in her chair of cynicism. She had lost her joy somewhere along the journey. So I think some of us might have too. And she was eavesdropping in on a conversation between Abraham and the Lord. I'm sure you, none of you ever do that at Starbucks, but she was totally like this. Hmm, what are they saying? And of course the Lord knew she was listening. And the Lord says, your wife, Sarah, will have a child by this time next year. And when the Lord said that, she's in her tent and she's like, <coughs> what does he have any idea? That's ridiculous. Look how old I am. Look how old he is. That's ridiculous. There's no way that's ever going to happen. And she was laughing out of a hardened heart, somewhere along the way, she had heard God promise the stars and the sand. I've heard it all before. 24 years in, nothing. Zip, zero. And she's only getting older. And you know how the Lord said to Abram, why is your wife Sarah laughing? And she totally gave up the fact that she was eavesdropping because she answers from the tent, I wasn't laughing! <laughs> And the Lord says, in this amazing response, he said, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Are you here? Have you become cynical? Just slightly, maybe hearted in your heart? Tired of waiting. Bottom of the lie, it's never going to change. never going to happen. Maybe for someone else, but not for me. What is it that has stolen your joy? I want to ask you the same thing the Lord asked him. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? When your 
heart can grab a hold of that reality. It catapults you out of the cynical place that you've been in and drives you back to the joyful journey. Look at how God restores the joy of Sarah. I believe he wants to do this for you as well. The Lord graciously remembered in Genesis 21, 1 through 7, the Lord graciously remembered and visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for her as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and gave birth to his son for Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham named his son Isaac, which means? How awesome is that? God redeemed that cynical laugh a year ago and made it a joyful laugh a year later, even naming their son Laughter. God wants to do the same for you if you and I are willing to leave this behind. The cynicism and the, and the sarcasm and the, and the hardness of heart and to believe again because nothing's too hard for my God that God will bring us that joy as well. He will birth it in us even today. So Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, just as God had commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old. Hey guys, don't give up. If he could have a child at a hundred, God's not done with you yet. Can I hear an amen from the house? Right? You guys, he's not done. The dude's a hundred and he's having a kid. Woo! And his son Isaac was born. Sarah said, I love this. God has made me laugh. All who hear about our good news will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have given birth to a son by him in his old age. You know what she's saying? She's looking back at that chair that she used to sit in. She was like, I used to be with the cynical crowd. I used to be the one laughing at God. And now I'm laughing with God. I'm holding the promise in my hands. I'm looking at the fulfillment of a God who even when I give up on him does not give up on me. I believe there's a promise in your life that's been stalled through cynicism that God is going to renew if you let him. There's a birthing of something new that's been stalled through hurt and fear. There's a joy about to be released in the body of Christ that will melt the coldest of hearts because we live in a cynical age and those who were laughing at you, what are you doing at church? You should be watching the game. Those who are laughing at you, They're going to laugh with you because they're going to see the Lord through you because you decided to come under his covering. You decided to leave comfort and cynicism behind. You looked up at those stars and you said, if my God said it, my God will do it. What he has started, he's faithful complete in me. Have you lost your joy? Look for Jesus. He's right there. I was reminded of this as I recently was in San Diego the first of the year with my brother-in-law and his girlfriend, and they're both Catholic. They invited me to their mass, Catholic mass, and celebrating Epiphany. This is the celebration of the wise men following the star to find Jesus and how they had an epiphany about where Jesus was. And of course, they, they, the way they celebrate is with food, which is always my favorite way to celebrate. And uh, they have this bread called the Orozco bread. Now, she is uh, 
Hispanic, Filipino. And so it largely comes from that tradition where they get this bread and it's a big round freshly baked bread with kind of like a cheese Danish filling and then like dried fruits all around it like figs and things like that all around it. And what you do is, the tradition is you you get it, you cut the bread up, and everyone sits around the table, and there's a baby Jesus baked into the bread. A baby Jesus. And whoever gets the baby Jesus is the guest of honor at the dinner table. And so I'm like, this is awesome. It's like hide and seek, but with baked goods. This is so cool. And so they cut it up, and my brother-in-law David hands me a slice my first bite of Orozco bread, I bite in, and, and David's like, John, you've got Jesus hanging out of your mouth. And I'm like, what? I thought it was like the stem of a fig. I was about to eat it, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this baby Jesus, I can have a baby Jesus. Yeah! I was so happy, not only because I'm slightly competitive and I really wanted to win, but also because now I have my own baby Jesus. And admittedly, if you're not careful, it could be a choking hazard. So I was really glad that David spotted that before I tried to eat baby Jesus. But, uh, but I had this epiphany in the middle of celebrating epiphany. That when you and I are going through hard times, it's hard to see Jesus. But Jesus is literally baked in to every moment when we are following him. He's there. If you seek him, you see him. You find Jesus, you find your joy again. That's easy to see them when everything's going great. Much harder so when everything's going awful. But I want to propose to you that there's not just one baby Jesus for one person, but we all become the guest of honor at his table. When we seek to find Jesus, we find our joy. And some of us need that word right now because God wants to give you back the joy of your salvation. Come back to Jesus. Find that even in the middle of your hardest situations right now, he is there for you. And when we find him, it changes how we live. We walk out of fear and we live by faith. In fact, that's your third and final point. It's time to move from living in fear to walking by faith. Now we're going to fast forward in the story. The son of promise, Isaac, has been born. In fact, now he's a man. He's married to Rebecca. And he's following in the footsteps of his father, Abraham, except in this incident, it's not necessarily a good thing. Genesis 26, 2-3 and verse 7 says, The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I will tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I'll be with you, and I'll bless you. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, which of course was a lie, because he was afraid to say she is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca, because she is beautiful. And here's what this chair represents one more time. It represents fear. Why did he lie? He was afraid. Why do we lie? We are afraid. And here's what's really interesting. Isaac was literally doing what his dad did a few chapters earlier for the exact same reason. Twice Abraham lied about his wife being his sister for his own self-preservation. And then what's even more interesting is Isaac's son, Jacob, 
took that deception ball from grandpa and dad and ran it down the field farther than either of them had before. Scripture gives us at least six times when Jacob, which literally means deceiver, lied for out of self-preservation or to advance his own personal agenda. And yet, here's what's blowing my mind. God introduces himself in both the Old and the New Testament as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are a bunch of liars. Why would God associate himself with them? Why would he introduce himself as the God of these guys? This is great news for us. First of all, because covenant with God is not based on our perfection, but it's based on his. And two, if God could redeem the legacy of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob so we see them as men of faith, he wants to do the same for you and I. And he will, and he can, the moment we leave the fear chair behind. What is it that you are afraid of? Failure? The unknown? Criticism? Whatever that fear is, it wants to keep you stuck there. And when we fear, we lie. We lie to ourselves. We lie to those around us because we're trying to cover ourselves instead of coming under his covering. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. When your wife gets a new pair of jeans and she's like, honey, do these make me look fat? Instantly, fear strikes the heart of every man because they're like, it's a trap! It's a trap! What should I say? The answer is only one answer if you want to live. Honey, you look amazing. That's the only answer. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. Just say it, right? And of course, that's, that's comical. But we lie because we're afraid, and that's a, that's a comical example, but the truth is, is that in much more serious situations, we lie because we're afraid, and then we stay in the fear. And if God could redeem the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I know He can redeem mine because it's well-worn. It's, some of these things have been passed down from my grandpa to my dad, and I don't want my son sitting here, amen? I don't want them sitting in the lies of my past. I don't want them to believe in the lies of my family. Some of the addictions, some of the, the chains of my past, I don't want them carrying it on to their children. So it stops right here when I take on fear and I say, I'm putting my trust in you, God. Trace every lie back to a place of fear and then you confess it and let God set you free in that place. And when you do, He can begin to use your story to set others free. I started out the message talking about Phil. My brother Phil Quadra. When one of his co-workers heard that I was going to be doing his memorial service today, it's going to be right here at 5. You're welcome to attend if you knew him. He sent me this letter. And this typifies the, the life of faith that I think God's calling all of us to. He said, hi, my name is Christopher Spencer. And the week before Phil went home, we were sitting in the break room at work together. I told him about my life and how crazy it had been, as well as the many things I had survived that I most likely shouldn't have. And he told me that the Lord had a plan for my life, and that is why I'm still alive He told me that when I finished doing what the Lord had for me to do, I would go home. The last thing I did was pray with Phil. And the next week he didn't come into work because he had finished doing what the Lord Jesus Christ had sent him here to do. Part of that was letting me know that Jesus Christ had a purpose for me. See, Phil was a sojourner. He lived his life by faith. 
And he determined that he was going to take as many as he could on that journey with him. And I want to end today by saying the same thing to you that Phil said to his coworker. If there's still breath in your lungs, God's not done. Your assignment hasn't been fulfilled yet. As far as I can see, you're all still breathing. It's good. It's a good sign. But I want you to live not just life to survive, not to stay stuck in the past, what's been handed down to you. I want you to thrive in all that God has for you. And that comes through knowing Him personally. So before we take communion, I want you to know with the same certainty Phil know that when he closed his eyes here, he would open his eyes in heaven. I want you to have that same assurance. So if you could bow your heads and close your eyes right now.